Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The fronts of the Great War had barely come to a close when it became clear to all of the belligerents involved that this process of peacemaking would be different from all of those that came before it. The Ottoman and German empires would be no more. But what would be done with their colonial territories? The 1648 Peace of Westphalia, which concluded the Thirty Years' War, is often considered to be the first modern peace treaty. It was the first peace agreement to articulate the concepts of territorial sovereignty. For 250 years after Westphalia, peace negotiations took a certain form. The victorious authorities and their allies gathered around a large map where they redistributed territory up for grabs, in part to reward themselves for a war well fought, but also to punish wayward transgressors or weak, ineffective states. This often led to the grouping of hostile populations together under an even more hostile imperial administrative structure. In the early 20th century political climate, this traditional approach no longer seemed to be an option. Anti-colonial sentiment had risen in Europe and in the Americas during the 1800s, as demonstrated by the Haitian Revolution and the Spanish-American Wars for Independence. Anti-colonial movements in Africa, India, Ireland, Vietnam, and elsewhere intensified after the start of the Great War in 1914. Africans, for example, had been chafing under the colonial rule of European powers since the quote-unquote scramble for Africa at the Berlin Conference of 1884. After the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, anti-colonial sentiment gained even more steam. In 1919, the idealistic American president, Woodrow Wilson, brought with him to the Paris Peace Conference his 14 points. Among these points were the doctrine of self-determination. 
the idea that all peoples have the right to determine the nature of their own governance. And an idea for a coalition that enhanced international security, a.k.a. the League of Nations. While progressives lauded Wilson's ideas in principle, the European powers who had won the Great War were skeptical and, and bitter. Unlike the United States, Britain and France had suffered immensely during the war, and they wanted reparations for their losses. Moreover, most of the officials who made up the French and British states were not ready to surrender their empires. Even though anti-colonial movements had gained strength during the war, they were still in the minority, and very few activists were in positions of power. Nonetheless, the French and British were obligated to convince anti-colonial factions that their claims to the former Ottoman territories were benign and in the territory's best interests rather than in their own. To limit colonial power in a world that was apprehensive about it, a liberalized colonial scheme was created and called a mandate. The mandate would be granted by an international coalition that would be known as the League of Nations. These events transformed the peacemaking process into something that was quite different from those of the past. Or was it? We'll soon find out. This week, as part of our Border series, we're telling the story of France's League of Nations mandates in Syria and Lebanon. I'm Marissa. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Can you believe we've been making this show for over four years? We couldn't have done it without our listeners and especially our Patreon supporters who literally keep the recording lights on. Lauren and Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, and Peggy, and our newest auger, Jessica. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Though mandates were rewarded for territories all over the world, including Africa and Oceania, we'll focus most on the Class A mandates, which applied to the Levant. Um, The Levant is the word for kind of the eastern Mediterranean region in the Near East. Class A territories were former holdings of the defunct Ottoman Empire. Because of the Ottoman Empire's loose administrative style and recent political deterioration, These areas were regarded as territories that had, in the words of conference attendees, quote, reached a stage of development where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognized subject to the rendering of administrative advice and assistance by a mandatory until such time as they are able to stand alone. The wishes of these communities must be a principal consideration of the selection of the mandatory, end quote. So this is kind of what we're working with. This is what the mandate is supposed to be. I roll. These areas were well on their way to being sovereign nations. And according to the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations, they merely needed guidance and mentorship from more mature nation states. The areas in question included Syria and Lebanon, Palestine, Transjordan and Mesopotamia or modern Iraq. You may notice that some of these areas are particularly unstable today. Many historians believe that the contemporary problems in some of these areas have deep roots in the mandate system. 
Today, we'll explore that possibility through the example of the French mandate in Syria and Lebanon. Traces of Orientalism or anti-Muslim and anti-Arab prejudice can be found in the proceedings of the Paris Peace Conference. During the conference, Eastern European, Balkan, and Norwegian areas were proclaimed to be, quote, sufficiently capable of statehood, end quote. But areas inhabited by more Muslims and Arabs were considered to be, quote, deficient in the qualities of statehood, end quote. Some educated Frenchmen outside of the diplomatic realm superficially noted the Syrians' level of civilization, but deemed the mandate necessary because of Syria's unfamiliarity with Republican government. Jean Luquet, holder of a doctorate in the administration of colonies, which is apparently a thing, uh, wrote in 1923, quote, Since the Levantine peoples are worthy of independence, why impose on them the servitude that is this mandate? It's being imposed for three reasons, and I'm, I am, I'm only quoting his first one. First, precisely because the people for whom the mandate was anticipated, having neither the habit of independence, nor the political education, nor the administrative framework, nor the statesmen, nor the functionaries capable of managing the new state, will have risked finding themselves suddenly in anarchy, end quote. It was difficult for the European powers to conceive of a political modernity that did not look like their own. This perception that Muslim or Arab culture was devoid of worth and reason was repeated again and again. For example, in an article by Colonel Wilkinson in the London Mercury, he writes, quote, The fact is that everything worth having in the Arabs comes to them from Saladin, who was born a Christian. To which Lawrence of Arabia, as T. Lawrence was commonly known, replied, quote, The fact is, who told that idiot that? The supreme assumption of it. And Saladin was born a Kurd, which I've never heard tell was the same thing as a Christian. Poof, piffle. <laughs> Poof, piffle. I just, lo- I just <laughs> love that. I can't believe he, he, did he write that or is that like a direct quote from his mouth? No, um. I, you know, I can't remember. I think that it's a, I think he wrote it um, as commentary on the article because he always kind of kept abreast of these situations and he, and he, I have his commentary on um, a lot of the speeches as well as articles that were written about this. That's so, hilarious. Um, and, and there's like an online um, database of his, his manuscripts. Um <laughs> Similar prejudices were voiced by British Prime Minister Lloyd George when writing his memoirs, though his statements were couched in seemingly benign terms. So at the time, I don't think people would have thought of this as being derogatory. Lloyd George made romantic allusions to history, as the French would soon do, to historicize a relationship between the Europeans and the Arabs. He did so when commenting on Sharif Hussein's ambitions in Turkey, writing, Here, indeed, is a flash of the old Arab spirit that carried the banner of Islam from Mecca through northern Africa, over the Spanish peninsula, across the Pyrenees, and fought a battle for the faith of the prophet in the Valley of the Loire, end quote. Lloyd George's reference to Arab imperialism is especially interesting because it reveals the belief in a long-standing Christian-Islamic binary. The binary begins with the Arab conquests in Europe and is continued in the medieval interactions between Saladin and, well, Saladin is really the more uh, better way to say his name, but I think it's been anglicized to Saladin, um, between Saladin and Norman, uh, the Norman Richard III. So the implication of such historicizing is that the French meant to take back what was theirs 
once and for all. They're drawing this long history back to um, the back to Muslim uh, Iberia and the Crusades and the Reconquista. Hmm. So within this well-meaning mandate system, there was not only the problems of latent colonial ambitions and bitterness over the casualties of war, there was also the issue of how these European powers were assessing the readiness of these regions for self-rule. In their arrogance, Western Europe saw no issue with assessing the Levantine regions by their own standards for a nation-state. In their attempts to evaluate political structures in the Levant in comparison to their own obviously superior states, they failed to appreciate the extent to which the Levant had developed its own organic system of rule over the past couple centuries. Right. So we're going to talk about about that. So um, during Ottoman rule, Levantine regions were divided into administrative units called Sanjaks and then further into millets. Millets were small groups with a sense of community based on ethnicity or religion. These small groups were essentially sovereign and had engaged in self-governance for decades, if not centuries, though in some areas where cooperation was possible, regional communities developed. For example, the diverse and sovereign groups within geographical Syria, historically called Balad al-Sham, formed a greater community, and they acknowledged such. Turks held the highest positions, such as governorship and that of imperial troops, but local government, responsible for the day-to-day functioning of Syrian society, was run by Syrian urban notables, who had their independent power source derived from cultural and economic foundations. The Turkish governors did not speak Arabic or know much about Arab culture, nor did they have enough military power in their own right, so they had to rely on mediators. Ottoman subjects always identified first with their smaller religious, ethnic, linguistic, or village groups, and secondly with the empire. But these smaller groups functioned within the greater Bilad al-Sham, including the mountains of Lebanon, the coastal area of Palestine, and the cities of Alexandretta and Edessa, and what was known as Syria under the mandate. A distinctly Syrian political culture arose, though its governmental units were still, you know, Ottoman Sanjaks. We'll talk a little bit more about this distinctive Syrian political culture in a bit. Though the British were not faultless in the implementation of their mandates, and I think at some point we'll do an episode about the handling of Palestine and Iraq, um, the French often flouted the principles behind the League of Nations mandates from the start. The French imperial apparatus sought to administer their mandate in Syria and Lebanon the same way they administered their empire in the Maghreb, which is Mediterranean North Africa. Let's look at the Syrian example. The mandate for Syria and Lebanon amounted legally to one mandate. However, the mandate was split by the French into six distinct territories. Damascus, Aleppo, Alawites, Jabal Druze, and the autonomous Sanjak of Alexandretta and Greater Lebanon. From these districts, two distinct states would eventually emerge. Syria, which was majority Muslim, and Greater Lebanon, which was majority Christian. However, there were several failed attempts at statecrafting along the way, which we'll talk about soon. So why so many failures? Most historians believe the French approached their mandates in the Levant with ulterior motives. In making matters worse, the League had no way to enforce the mandates. 
It was on rare occasions that the League was even aware of abuses wrought by the Paris peace powers. The French kept the League in a state of misinformation, so the foreign press served as their main source of, of information. This is made evident by the letters of British archaeologist Gertrude Bell, who was working in Syria at the time the League of Nations mandates were established. She said, quote, The League can scarcely pretend to take the very thin French explanation at the foot of the letter. Too much information has come through by means of foreign journalists. They had no better way of discovering the realities of the mandate in Syria, and when they were made aware of the mandate's instability, internal politics kept them from revoking the mandate. Even before they were awarded the mandate for Syria and Lebanon, the French hopefuls' approach to the Levant was clear. The French were convinced that they had a special relationship with Syria, and that it was divine providence that they would be in charge of Syria and Lebanon after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. At the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, French statesman Stéphane Pichon, speaking on behalf of France's Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, declared France's claim on Syria. Pichon emphasized the leading role of the Franks in the Crusades through the rule of Louis XIV and on to the 1860 expedition to aid persecuted Christians. Pichon drew a straight line between the Frankish Crusades to the end of the Great War, claiming France and Syria had always had a special relationship. To most Europeans and Americans, this logic made sense. In November of 1925, the New York Times stated matter-of-factly, quote, The choice of France as agent for the protection of Syrian Christians was determined by a traditional special interest in those lands, claimed by France and acquiesced in by the powers. If we wish, we may trace the sentimental claim back to the Crusades, when all of the armies of the West were known to the Muslim owners of Palestine as Franks, a name perpetrated, a name perpetuated in the Ferengi of today, the common designation for all Europeans. The author of this New York Times article also assumes that France was granted the mandate for Syria and Lebanon so that they could act as protectors to the Christians there. Communities of Syriac Christian Maronites were concentrated around Mount Lebanon. By depicting themselves as crusaders turned civilizers, the French expected to teach what they knew to the, quote, backward religious warriors in Syria. What the French failed to realize was that the Crusades, central to their own interpretation of Syrian and Lebanese politics, were not terribly relevant to modern Syrians and Lebanese. Tabitha Petron writes in her survey of Syrian history and society, quote, The Crusades were but an episode in which had little influence beyond convincing Syrians of the inferiority of Western civilization. Bernard Lewis says something similar about Arabic histories, quote, Muslim historians show little interest in whence or why the Franks had come and report their arrival and their departure with equal lack of curiosity. Levantines, having first encountered the Franks as Byzantine auxiliaries and later as oafish marauders, surely saw the difference between the semi-tribal Frankish crusaders of history and the post-Enlightenment superpower with whom they were confronted in the 20th century. The power balance had certainly changed. The French conception of Syrian Muslims as crude, fanatical, and in need of French civilizing efforts can be seen in their press releases and interviews in the New York Times. Um, I should say that the uh, Le Monde and, and the London Times and the kind of European newspapers, there was a lot of censorship, so a lot of the information that kind of filters down to us today from 
um, mandatory Syria and Lebanon, where it was published in the United States, actually. So during the 1920s, the New York Times was rife with headlines like the following, quote, fever of independence again seizes the Muslims, end quote. And the French in Syria face seething races. And Damascus again is put to the sword. And tribesmen fight on. And warlords gone, but the war is going on. Or Syrian leading men interested more in upheavals than developing. And uh, lastly, a Western power's protection is declared essential until Islam learns to be tolerant. Situation unchanged since the Crusades. End quote. So, according to the French, the Syrians were wild primitives, willing to risk the country's stability in pursuit of an antiquated past. And not only according to the French, but also obviously according to the Americans and the Brits as well. At the Paris Peace Conference, Emir Faisal, speaking on behalf of the Arab peoples, became incensed at a remark by an unnamed delegate who implied the Arabs were not as civilized as Europeans. He said, quote, I belong to a people who were civilized when every other country represented in this room was populated by barbarians. Before the representative of Rome had a chance to protest, Faisal cut him off, saying, quote, yes, even before Rome came into existence. <laughs> Isn't that such a sick burn? Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> stab, stab, stab! <laughs> Muslims in the Levant would have likely chafed at the Orientalist insults hurled at them from the Western European superpowers, but the idea that France should administer the Syrian territory because of a centuries-old war would have just been preposterous. T.E. Lawrence, who was in attendance at the Paris Peace Conference, giddily commented on Faisal's interruption, but pardon me, which one of us won the Crusades? <laughs> um, he always, like, did that. He was, <laughs> he, I think he was kind of suggesting what Faisal should have said, I think. <laughs> like, pardon me, which one of us won the Crusades? Sassy. He's a sassy bitch. Right. <laughs> um, however, for the French, little had changed in Damascus since their ancestors made their cross-bearing pilgrimage to the Levant as they released to the foreign press, quote, there is no other city where customs have changed so little during the ages, end quote. This has been made exceedingly clear through the statements of French and British officials, the Allied press, and especially through French polemical literature and song. Thus, it was in a political environment that championed self-determination and a newfound enlightened humanism, but still held fast to Orientalist attitudes and centuries-old war-born grudges that the French mandate in Syria and Lebanon was implemented. France set the scene in Syria as one of religious fanaticism, playing out in the constant tumult of religious war with the minority Christians on the wrong end of the sword. These religious divisions played up by the French were subsequently turned into geographical divisions upon occupation. Within months of being in possession of the mandate, the French segregated the predominantly Christian Lebanon away from Muslim Syria in 1920. In 1922, the Jabal Druze and Alawite Latakia became separate states as well, both under French protection. In 1924, the Sanjak of Alexandretta, almost exclusively Turk, was declared a separate state as well. The predominantly Sunni Arab cities of Aleppo, Damascus, Horns, and Hama were under the same administration for virtually all of the mandatory period. The French saw Syria in terms of sectarianism, 
portraying its pluralism as an ailment in a sick, backward Syrian polity. As one historian put it, in emphasizing communal differences and aspirations, the French claimed to be bowing to political reality and popular desire. However, their interpretation of political reality conveniently fit their desire to weaken pan-Syrian sentiment and Arab nationalism. It's fair to argue that the French were attempting to sabotage the Syrians by instituting artificial geographical divisions that emphasize differences rather than commonalities. Right, so it's weird because in the past a lot of times empires would just kind of take over these huge swaths of areas and just kind of treat them all the same even though there was so much difference. In this situation it's kind of the opposite. The French are saying, oh look at how different all these different people are. Let's, you know, um, give them all their own little state or whatever. Um, And it sounds good but in practice it actually is messing everything up. Um, So, right. Um, In line with this mission, the French made much of the presence of a Lebanese Christian community, the Maronites, as we mentioned before, within the mandate for Syria and Lebanon. The Maronites were the medieval guardians of the Franks, they were in communion with Rome, and they were hated by the majority of Syrians. But there's considerable evidence that the dislike of the Maronites in the 19th and early 20th centuries was a response to their antagonism of the predominantly Sunni Syrians upon the arrival of the French troops during World War I. Syrian Christian Dr. Fars Nimer said in 1919, quote, the hatred between Muslims and Christians, which I watched gradually disappearing and rejoiced to watch it disappear, had revived with astonishing speed since the French have been in Beirut. Maronites openly boast that their day has come and exasperate the Muslims, end quote. The Maronites did indeed believe their day had come. The Maronite hierarchy had aspirations for a great Lebanon, and they're probably responsible in part for France's misinformation as they championed the idea of separation, citing their plight as a Christian minority. However, the small Christian community could never maintain a state of their own without pulling in the adjacent Muslim communities. The Maronite clergy, relishing the idea of presiding over the majority in a small state, assured the French that the inclusion of non-Maronite areas into the state of Lebanon would not be a problem. However, the request was never feasible because such a small Maronite state was so weak that it would have always had to depend on the French for survival. Such dependence was hardly sovereignty, which was the goal of France's mandate. What is more is that the Lebanese state further injured anti-French agitators by waving their new flag described as the, quote, tricolor of France with a cedar tree on the white ground. The cedar tree represented protection, more specifically protection from a Christian god, another nudge to the Sunni nationals who were already embittered by the truncation of geographical Syria. Determined to reward their co-religionists who had so dutifully lobbied for a French mandate at the Paris Peace Conferences and agreeable to the creation of a tiny Christian state ripe for civilization by the French Empire, the French annexed Lebanon from the rest of Syria in 1920. The state of Lebanon was three times larger than the Ottoman Sanjak that had designated the area for centuries prior. It included communities of Orthodox Christians, Shias, and a considerable amount of Sunnis as well as a few geographical areas that were important to the Syrian economy. The separation allowed a Christian minority to exercise authority in an area where non-Christian communities still resided. 
It was impossible for the French to exclude any and all Muslim communities from the autonomous area because that would have rendered the state economically deficient. These Muslim communities in what the French declared to be Greater Lebanon were angry at their isolation from the rest of the region and campaigned side by side with nationalists for reunion with Syria. The Lebanese Christians, on the other hand, saw an opportunity to be the majority for once, a temptation they apparently could not pass up. The result was what appeared to be religious hostility, the likes of which had not been seen in the area for centuries, such as Nimmer described. Most scholars agree that French nation-making in Syria-Lebanon was disastrous. Before the arrival of the French, the Syrians had, over time, created a way to coexist as loosely united Sanjaks under Ottoman rule, relying on localized governments and economic networking. They were geopolitically divided along religious lines, but these divisions transformed over time into separate political units. The population in each individual unit was united by a common religion, language, ethnicity, geography, and economy. Hostility between these units was relatively minimal under the Ottoman-style organization. Hostilities escalated when France tried to group different units into a nation because these small political units never had to collaborate as co-citizens in a European-style state. Hmm. Operating according to a paternalistic religion-based campaign, the French were unwilling to dignify the native structures already in place at the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Unable to reconcile this current system to the only concept of nation that they, the French, considered civilized, the French viewed Syria's unique geopolitical organization as the religious separatism of an uncivilized people. In doing so, they radicalized Syrian religious groups and emerged as bipartisan protector of the various groups in the Muslim world. They also debased Syrian political culture by creating a European-style nation in Lebanon and blaming the fanaticism and stubbornness of the Syrian people for its failure. Right, so they're kind of imposing this inorganic system um, on a place that already has a system. That was working. That was working, but it just didn't look like their own. Right. Um, so the French did something similar with two other ethnic groups occupying the Mandate Territory. The separation of the Jabal Druze and Alawite Latakia from the rest of Syria is even more indicative of how France's imperial efforts sabotaged political unity. Both groups, the Druze and the Alawi, were apostolical to Islam and therefore afforded less tolerance than people of the book according to Sharia law. Nonetheless, the gradual shift of importance from religion to other categories within Syrian politics applied to these groups as well. The gradual secularization of Syrian society had already taken root by 1860, which is apparent upon closer examination of, of what is traditionally considered a religious war. The French intervention in the Maronite Druze Wars of 1860 was, much like their mandatory administration, a mixture of French aid and French sabotage. A controversy erupted over who would receive governorship of a Sanjak to which Maronites and Druze belonged. One candidate was favored by the Maronite peasants, uh, the French, the Ottomans, and the Maronite clergy, and the other one was backed by the Lebanese overlords, many of them Druze and the British. 
To gain support for their favored candidate, the French encouraged the Maronite and Druze peasants to rebel against their overlords, inciting long-standing peasant grievances. Upon eruption of this peasant revolt, the Druzes sought to fight alongside the Maronites against their overlords. But Ottoman authorities warned them not to join in the class struggle with the Maronites, so they protected their land in case the destruction reached their area. Right, so instead of instead of joining the class struggle, they just sat back and protected their land. Okay, now I, now I understand. The revolt did, in fact, intensify, compelling more and more Maronite peasants to rebel against their overlords, some of whom were Druze. The Druze peasants then came back to the rescue of Druze overlords against the French-backed Maronites, which is no surprise, as it was the Druze overlords who put food on the peasants' tables and could just as easily take it away. The Druze, being more skillful fighters, killed greater number of Maronites than vice versa, and hence the misnomer of Christian massacres of 1860. So um, one may argue that this was essentially a a class struggle that was elevated to the status of an ethnic war um, thereafter, and mostly incited by the French themselves. Um, Some, like the Imperial French, argued it was a religious war. Quote, in 1860, Damascus was the scene of a terrible massacre of the Christians. More than 6,000 were killed by the Muslims, whose minds had been greatly excited by the Indian mutiny. End quote. But many Sunnis sided with the Maronites. Shias protected Maronites and other Christians from Druze attacks, and most Greek Orthodox were on the side of the Druzes. Cross-religious alliances during the rebellion make its designation as a religious war inaccurate. As we mentioned before, France used its involvement with the Maronites during the Crusades and its intervention in the conflict of 1860 to stake its claim on Syria. These contentions rested on the notion that the Syrians were socially and politically divided along religious lines, and that it was only natural that aid should come from the traditional knights in shining armor, the French. Which is funny, because if you're actually, like, fighting for something, your armor probably isn't very shiny. A critical examination of the 1860 skirmishes not only reveals France's hand in the eruption of the skirmishes, but also reveals that religious loyalties were secondary to others. In this case, class and ethnicity, even at this very early time. The creation of the independent Jabal Druze in 1921, which was supposed to be one of France's obligations under the mandate, was also unsuccessful, resulting in its reattachment to Greater Syria in 1936. The state of Jabal Druze was disorganized and disunited from the start, deemed as an unviable national entity. One reason for this was the class of Druze professionals who, vying for political power in the urban notable scene, joined forces with predominantly Sunni Syrian nationalists. France's unsuccessful separation of the Jabal Druze from Greater Syria suggests that this movement away from religious identification was even more advanced by the early mandatory period. Historian Philip Corey writes, quote, Under the Ottomans, Druze and Alawi religious differences, cultural and political backwardness, and physical isolation kept these two minorities out of the mainstream of political culture. Between the wars, the French authorities spared no efforts to promote and exploit this separatism, end quote. Unfortunately for the French, Syrian separatism had its limitations. According to Corey, Quote, despite the insular defensive attitude of the Druze community with its esoteric religious beliefs, 
feudal social structure, physical isolation, and long history of armed resistance to external interference in the Jabal's affairs. By World War I, the Jabal had been irretrievably lured into the orbit of Damascus. Damascene merchants and bankers financed the Druze cereal crops, and Druze notables visited or spent winters in the city among the Sunni urban notables. Druze leader Sultan al-Atrash communicated with urban nationalists using a Druze-run office in Damascus called the Druze Agency. The Druzes enjoyed the sovereignty they thought they were being awarded upon declaration of their separate state in 1921, but seeing that this sovereignty was in name only and still rendered them dependent on the French, the Druzes used these connections to instigate the Great Syrian Revolt in 1925. In this way, the failure of the Jabal Druze can be attributed to France's politicization of religious pluralism in Syrian politics. Right. So if you can see what's happening with Lebanon and with Jabal Druze, both of them what's happening is that the French are making these little tiny nations that don't have what it takes to be sovereign nations so that they have to rely on the French. So the French can basically just be imperial. Right. But they're saying, oh, well, we're giving them their own separate state because they're separatists. And yeah, there were separatists, but there were also a lot of people who believed in Syrian or Arab um, unity. And they were just pretending that those people didn't exist so that they could get what they wanted, if that makes sense. It does. The same overemphasis led to the similar failure of the Alawite state, 1922 to 1936, within the mandate. With its capitals in Latakia, the Alawite state was another nationally unviable unit. As the French granted autonomy to the Alawis, they once again isolated Sunni Arabs from greater Syria, as complete political separation of religion was impossible. A Sunni Arab landowning class in Latakia, rendered impotent by French geographical divisions, aligned with Syrian nationalists, just as Lebanese Muslims and Druze notables had. The Alawite state was in disarray, resulting in its reincorporation into Greater Syria in the 1930s. The Alawi case is exponentially more complicated than that of the Druze. However, because uh, after reincorporation and French evacuation of the country in 1946, the Alawis became the most powerful class in Syria. Far from indicating the success of French minority-favoring policies, the case of the Alawis is one that supports the argument for a sophisticated Syrian political culture and how the French underestimation of that culture resulted in the radicalization of Syrian religious groups. According to Daniel Pipes, quote, For many centuries, the Alawis were the weakest, poorest, most rural, most despised, and most backward people of Syria, end quote. Today, they are the ruling elite at only 12% of the population in Syria. They govern the majority Sunni Arab population. Religious dissimulation, takia, or in other words, just sort of faking it, right, contributed greatly to the Alawi rise to power. The French favored the Alawi most likely because of their, quote, secret Christian proclivity. The Alawi conception of the fourth caliph, Ali, is akin to the Christian conception of Jesus Christ. They have a holy trinity, venerate Christian saints, and celebrate Christian holidays like Christmas, Easter, and Palm Sunday. T.E. Lawrence wrote that the Alawi are, quote, disciples of a cult of fertility, sheer pagan, anti-foreign, distrustful of Islam, drawn at moments to Christianity by common persecution. 
Though Lawrence's words make known the suspicion felt by many toward the Alawi, he also suggests a rationale for the Alawi attachment to the Christian French Empire. In support of the French, the Alawis refused to send delegates to Faisal's General Syrian Congress in 1919 and used French arms to instigate a revolt. Depicting themselves as Christians gone astray, Alawi chiefs sent General Gouraud a telegram asking for an independent Alawi state under French protection. The French conspired with the Alawis to create with them a shared past and with it a stronger political alliance. René Dussault and Henri Lamain attempted to connect the colloquial designation for the Alawi, Nuzaris, with the word for Christians, meaning followers of the Nazarene, Nazara. However, when it suited them soon after, the Alawis rebelled against the French, claiming they ascribed to Arabism above all else. Takia was practiced by the Alawis in the past as well, and would be in the future. In the late 19th century, the Ottomans noticed the Alawis' religious vacillation and practice of attaching themselves to powerful forces who could improve their minority status. To prevent the growth of European influence, the Ottomans launched a Muslim missionary expedition of sorts, building mosques in Islamic schools and pressuring chiefs to ascribe to Muslim orthodoxy. During this era, the Alawis identified as Muslim. A decade after French rule, the Alawis again demonstrated their dissimulative skill. Unbeknownst to Sunni Damascenes, 10,000 Alawis lived among them for an undetermined amount of time. As their true religious identity was of no political use in former eras, only after the Alawi rose to power did these same Alawis reveal themselves. Pipes writes, quote, Takia permitted the Alawis to blow with the wind a testament to flexibility necessary to survive in a society characterized by pluralism. Right. So these different groups had come up with these strategies to um, to kind of gain power, but also just kind of plot along um, in this very, like, pluralist society. Um, it would be reductionist to conclude that in light of their dissimulative practices, the Alawi were atheists or anti-clerical. That's probably not, it's not really fair to say that. It's not like they're just making crap up and pretending to be religious um, or not religious, right? Um, but their case implies that in Syrian society during the mandate, economic and political power was more important than doctrinal matters. The Alawi only used Christianity as a tool to gain French favor because they justified their occupation using religion. More important is their willingness to adopt any religious practice. Matters of doctrine were less important than improving the lot of their social group. This social setup was in place before the mandate and continued long after the French left, allowing the Alawis to rise to power. Nimmer's observation of a decrease in tensions between Christians and Muslims in Syria prior to French control is supported by Corey's research. Evidence points to a decline in the role of religion in Syrian society beginning in the 19th century. During this time, many religious figures lost their power base. Of the three main groups that composed the newly consolidated ruling class of urban notables, only one group gleaned its power even remotely from a religious base. The ulama and the ashraf composed this group, but in Syria, they were authorities because they, quote, were the guardians of urban civilization and Islamic high culture, and not because theological scholarship or primogenitor gave them such authority. 
Moreover, these groups had always been strongly ensconced in commercial activity, and by the end of the 19th century, their secular power may have been said to overshadow their religious authority. Quote, hence their wealth came not only from their control of pious trusts, but also from their control of production and trade. And by the 18th century, from hereditary tax farms, Malacane, around the towns. Right, so even these religious authorities mostly derive their authority from not religious things. That makes sense. Right. Uh, further proof of the declining role of religion in Syrian society was the relaxation in marriage customs among religious authorities. Quote, just after the mid-19th century, religious leaders broke with social custom by supporting marriages outside of their family networks. The families of the Syrian upper crust, instead of maintaining their affluence through careful marriage arrangements, they made marriage arrangements with those whose power base was not religious. This suggests that religious-based status was no longer a sufficient source of power. This new networking created an ethnically heterogeneous upper class with a strictly economic power base. Though religious authorities were sometimes powerful, by the time of World War I, they did not owe their power to their religious status, but rather to the clientele they earned outside of the religious realm. In fact, the case of the Alawi suggests that Syrians were adept at leveraging religious and ethnic pluralism to achieve unity and political stability. Most scholars have found that dissimulation, or feigning assimilation, but maintaining a specific tradition underneath the front, best characterizes not only the Alawis, but Syrian society as a whole. As Corey notes, quote, sect members participate in society at large and work in everyday occupations widespread in the polity, but they dichotomize their lives, all members feeling they are living in a special religious world valuable in itself and distinguished from all others, end quote. From day to day, the Maronites, Druze, and Alois practiced the separation of religion from politics. This dichotomy explains how the Alois could so easily assume different religious identities. This feature of Syrian society is especially interesting because it approaches secularism, a separation of church and state, that is known to France, but unknown to the Sunni Arab majority in the Near East. Right, and it's not something you normally associate with the Islamic world. Right. Historian A.H. Harani says, quote, the art of rapid and superficial acculturation and that of preserving beneath new modes of behavior and in new forms their old beliefs and ways of living, end quote. Richard Antoon, for one, notes the grace with which Syrian society acclimatizes to their intense cultural diversity, making Syria an academic goldmine for sociologists and political scientists alike. So Antoon says, the reaction of Syria's people to the contrasting cultural, demographic, economic, and political currents from across the Mediterranean and Europe on the one hand, and across the desert and Arabia on the other, has been absorption and accommodation, and often at the same time, tension and conflict. Accommodation has taken place at the sociocultural level in the development of a mosaic society well adapted to the geographical diversity of the country, in which a number of ethnic groups and sects, Sunni Muslims, Alawis, Druze, Greek Orthodox, Kurds, Circassians, Ismailis, find their niches in various regions of the country or in various ethnic divisions of labor in urban centers, end quote. The ethnic division of labor is very apparent in Syria, where there is a long tradition of urbanism. The Druzes and Alawis, confined within relatively isolated mountain units, were poorer, less educated, and focused more on agriculture than the urbanized Sunnis. 
Nonetheless, there were many Sunni Muslims who also lived in rural communities. It was not unheard of for people of different religions to join together with grievances against the exploitative classes, implying that class loyalties challenged religious loyalties at this time. The example of the Druze peasants initially preparing to join the Maronite peasants against their overlords in 1860 is a good example of class trumping religious loyalty. Considering the socioeconomic divisions between the different religions can, however, make religious persuasion look like a point of contention. Hannah Batatu holds that these groups always act in terms of class interests, though class structure is based on ethnic and religious convention. She says, quote, Alawis, and by implication others with ethnic identities, invoke relations with other Alawis to advance personal and ideological ambitions rather than to promote the common interests of the sect. Fealty is a far more important criterion than religion for the distribution of power in Syria. Fealty, the faith pledged to a lord by his vassal, is perhaps a good way to describe why the Druzes in 1860 eventually sided with the Druze overlords instead of Maronite peasants in their class. Far from an example of religious loyalty overtaking class loyalty, the Maronite Druze example proves the point. There were, of course, Maronite peasants and Druze overlords, but generally speaking, the Druzes were poorer and less educated than the Maronites. The Druzes, as a group, based their bond on their economic status vis-a-vis the other Syrian minorities. So in the 1860 war, when they eventually unified against the Maronites, the thrust of their discontent with the Christian Maronites was not religious as much as it was based on geopolitical survival. To better understand the function of these religious come political groups in Syrian society, Corey breaks them up into two different categories. On the one hand, you have sects. The Druzes, Ibadis, Zaydis, Maronites, Yazidis, and Alawis, who all lived on the peripheries. They have historical tendencies of rebellion, they cluster into a homeland and use simulation to operate in society. But minorities, like Copts, Greek Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Jews, and Ismailis live in cities under foreign government or Sharia protection. This helps to understand Syrian society in that it reminds scholars that the term Alawi and Shia or Maronite refer not simply to a, an ethnic identity or a religious ideology, but also to a territory, a politico-economic system, a wide-ranging cultural repertoire, and a history. These social theories imply that in modern Syria, divisions among the different religions um, are no longer doctrinal. Those lines have been blurred over time by dissimulation. The divisions in Syrian society, therefore, represent a localism based on culture, class, and geography rather than religious and political disagreement. The implication of such theories is that each group creates not just a spiritual, social, or geographical community, but a distinct political unit within the Balad al-Sham. What emerges is a uniquely Syrian flavor of politics revolving around pluralism, using dissimulation to achieve political unity when it's needed. Despite this high degree of political sophistication, the French, under the mandate, were able to politicize Syrian pluralism and sow disorder where there had previously been very little. Um, This disorder culminated in the Great Syrian Revolt of 1925. Evidence of the declining importance of religion in Syrian politics may be found in the slogan for the Great Syrian Revolt of 1925, quote, religion belongs to God, the motherland, to all. This slogan was probably created by the political elite 
but it was uttered by popular Syria nonetheless, indicating they were aware and accepting of the religious pluralism that characterized geographical Syria. Moreover, they insisted that they all belonged to geographical Syria in some way, even if they couldn't form a nation like the French or British nation. From the French, Syrians asked for national sovereignty, a loosely united Syria, a decentralized government, and a liberal constitution. Unfortunately, the units which were to be loosely united were not specified. Right. Like, what? Who are these units? Right. Right. Um, the Great Syrian Revolt was sparked when Druze leader Sultan Al-Atrash attacked French forces after they arrested a Lebanese man accused of trying to assassinate Goro, and the French uh, responded by raiding and bombing his home. So, a hell of a lot going on. Um, from that point on, Sultan al-Atrash had enough support to start insurgent activities. He was covertly supported by Damascene nationalist notables. Familiar with the nationalist platform, al-Atrash declared his grievances were nationalist ones. Meanwhile, Maghreb veteran uh, Captain Carbier began administering the job al-Druze um, directly and with a distinct flavor of personal demagoguery. Carbier was intent on instituting a Moroccan-style system though he did so imperfectly. His biggest mistake was his agricultural policy, which sought to abolish the communal property system in the Jabal, um, which favored Drew's notables. Discouraged by the notables who stood to lose power in the case of the policy's success, the peasantry were apprehensive toward Carbier's reforms. Soon thereafter, Carbier instituted forced peasant labor to facilitate the building of roads designed for wheeled vehicles that they did not possess. So, Carbier is killing it, you know. <laughs> uh, spinning their wheels, one might say. Carbier's agricultural policies were successful enough to agitate Druze notables, but not successful enough to appease the Druze peasantry, to whom he promised so much. Sultan Alatrash, the Druze peasantry, and the notables who presided over them united against the French in July 1925. Seeing a channel for their nationalist program and an opportunity to convince the French that Syrians of all walks of life were unified against them, Damascene nationalists joined the revolt. These Damascene notables, losing their power to both the French and the other Syrian elements who the French favored in a divide-and-conquer technique, transformed the 1925 Druze revolt into a power struggle between these urban notables and the French occupiers. The international community, with French encouragement, believed that the Syrian revolt reflected a vibrant Syrian nationalist movement. This so-called national movement for Syrian independence, led by the Western-educated elite, did not reflect the ideology of the Syrian people. Rather, it was the reaction of these elites to their exclusion from the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the war. Nationalism was a way for notables to demand an audience with the French political structure so as to maintain their delicate balance of power. The French benefited from this misconception because it implied that five years into the mandate, the Syrians were united more than they were before and that they were merely annoyed with French presence, right? So it kind of looks, people are like, wow, the French are really doing a good job in Syria. There's this pan-Syrian uh, movement, uh, you know, that's happening in this revolt that's happening in 1925. So people are thinking they did a good job, even though the French did everything they could to separate Syria into separate weak states. Mm -hmm. 
The end to the revolt, therefore, reflected the Syrian elite's recapturing of power and not France's military or diplomacy skill. Syria was not pacified, but vindicated by its end. Because the French were unable to fund direct administration of Syria, and because the League of Nations demanded that the mandate only be temporary, it was necessary for the French to operate with the help of native elements. Therefore, the Syrian elite exercised power by aligning itself with the foreign government of the time, but they were obligated to maintain an independent power base as the foreign government itself never conferred official power to them. So, like, this, the mandate makes it very slippery as to, like, they're like, we're not really, uh, we're not really colonial, but we're kind of colonial, you know, and nobody knows where that line is. One historian says, quote, given the intrinsic illegitimacy of France's position and its penchant for dictatorial policy, I should say penchant because that sounds... No, I like penchant better. Penchant. Um, <laughs> penchant. Uh, for a dictatorial policy without regard for the position and interests of the local elite, many urban leaders became forces of opposition. They had to appear more as the spokesmen of the people in the halls of power than as agents of the French, end quote. So it was easy for nationalist notables to extract support from the disaffected Syrian classes because it quietly emphasized religious solidarity against the Christian French. And this was the case even though the movement was bourgeois in character, um, as you can kind of um, glean from the nationalists' failure to make economic and social equality a part of their program. So even though this looks like it's this, I don't know, grassroots revolt, um, it's not. It's fancy people, you know, uh, revolting against even fancier people. <laughs> so like America. Just kidding. <laughs> Unable to risk losing their popular support by consorting with an illegitimate imperial administration, urban notables resorted to the only method available to gain access to administrative positions. They built a coalition against the French, created further reaching alliances with other towns, other Arab territories, popular societies, any alliance that could gain them the trust of larger parts of the population. The notables hoped to compel the French to grant them the influence to which they had become so accustomed before the mandate. In a way, the French, by alienating the Muslim population in their colonial campaign, encouraged the growth of dissident movements but not because Syrian Muslims were culturally offended and lashing back against their antagonists. Rather, because the politically astute notables could assume the role of the quote-unquote protectors of culture and guardians of the faith in the wake of an illegitimate Christian power that was bent on empowering non-Muslim minorities. This notoriety gave notables immeasurable amounts of influence in the movement. Right, so the French almost manufactured these religious religious radicalism really that that hadn't existed before they were happy just going along with dissimulation and just kind of um doing what they had to do to make their pluralist society work and then the french who came along and were like we are restarting the crusades all that crap um really ended up fomenting um religious radicalism in the area 
This exact tactic was employed by Syrian notables for use against attempts by the Ottomans at revitalization. So during the Tanzimat in the 19th century, some urban notables lost their government positions to Turks as part of the Young Turks program of Turkification. Very Turkey in that sentence. (laughs) I like saying the word Turkification, if I'm honest. (laughs) Um, Those who lost their livelihood espoused pan-Arabism as a means of combating Turkification and its encroachment on notables' positions. As one historian puts it, thus during the war, when many notables began to jump from the sinking Ottoman ship, they grabbed as they fell the rope of Arab nationalism. They really had no other choice. It was this rope that enabled them to enter the interwar years with their political and social influence intact. But those who kept their jobs did not espouse Arab nationalist beliefs, as one historian notes. By contrast, many notables who managed to hold onto their posts supported the empire until the collapse of its authority in the Syrian provinces in 1918. Likewise, during the French mandate, the powder keg of Arab nationalism was only tapped by Syrian notables whose status was in jeopardy. Moreover, notables only mobilized their nationalist forces in the short term with very specific goals in mind for fear of isolating the French and therefore losing the French support they sought to earn. According to Corey, at times, quote, the elite feared mobilizing the streets, the mosques, and the schoolyards even more than they feared the French. Should the movement spin out of control, it would destroy their chance at an exchange with French administration. Scholars disagree about the consequences of the Great Syrian Revolt. Miller holds that after the revolt, the French were aware that the local officials held all political power, the Syrian national movement was artificial, and that Syrian society was so fragmented. And this is a quote from Miller, quote, notables joined the revolt in the hope of reinforcing their power. Ironically, many of them who were in power at the start of the revolt were out by its end. In many ways, this revolt marks more clearly and decisively than the end of the war, the disintegration of political culture of the Ottoman Empire in Syria. So Miller is saying the Syrian you know, structure kind of continued until the French destroyed it as culminated in the um or the Syrian revolt. Corey maintains that the notables were hesitant to participate in the revolt, but their inability to maintain power in any other way made it a necessity. As the revolt spread beyond the Jabal Druze, they saw the opportunity to get the attention of the French while appearing as popular champions. The difficulty the French had at putting down the revolt inspired them to make certain dispensations that they had otherwise been hesitant to grant. The result was that urban notables were able to revert to the method of mediation that they were best at. They continued from that point on to rely on diplomacy and limited protests to achieve their political goals as far as the French were concerned. This way of achieving independence, as Corey calls it, was the notables' preferred method and saw them through the rest of the mandatory period. They operated exactly as they had during the 19th century. This is in opposition to Miller, who claims that the notables lost power as a result of the, rev- of the revolution, implying that the French had won that power struggle. But this power balance was exactly what these notables had been seeking in the first place, thus making their politics successful. Right. So some people argue that, hey, in a way, these Syrian notables got what they wanted. Um, Miller claims they did not. Um, And that's 
the slippery nature of um, working on the history of the Middle East is that nobody agrees what even what actually happened, much less how to interpret <laughs> how to interpret what happened. Um, therefore, the espousal of radical ideology was a way of maintaining the delicate status quo that the French had interrupted, rather than a show of destabilizing might against French control. This can be said not only of the Syrian notables who were openly nationalists, but also of the Druze notables who espoused nationalist ideology once the French began depriving them of their influence. So basically, when the French started messing with stuff, that is when this... Um, pan-Arab nationalism and sometimes um, Muslim uh, nationalism developed. This goes against everything the French were saying about Syrian politics at the time, blaming the lack of order in Syria on its Muslim citizens rather than on diluted, high-handed French policy. High Commissioner Juvenal said the following about Syria. If the people are not enjoying the fruits of such free institutions today, Syria had none to blame but those who are fighting you at the present moment. It is better to prefer peace to victory. The enemy, by his attacks, pillaging, and massacres, forces us to continue the fight. Until we have set up that degree of independence and prosperity which the people of Lebanon and Syria aspire to in which only the rebellion of today retards. The commissioner has made clear that the Christian population and all the foreigners will be protected with the full force of the French army. So he very slipperily, <laughs> slipperily, I don't know, it says that these people who are unhappy with French control are the ones to blame for the lack of a, a unified state. Which is kind of like how colonialism always works, I right. guess. The Druzes, particularly, were singled out by the Francophile press as being the inherent wrench in the gears of the French mandate in Syria. According to them, in all cases, were the Syrians in support of the French, quote, save among the ever-intransigent Druzes, whose very religion made them opposed to all compromise. To the international community, the revolt reflected the fanatical mayhem of Muslim nationalists who espoused views based on independence, but had neither the level of civilization to achieve it, nor the sense to welcome French aid in achieving such goals. As the French gave in to the demands of the Syrian political elite, the revolt wound down, telling the world that the French were back in control of their mandate. But upon closer examination, it became clear that the, quote, revolt revealed that the Syrian entity created at Versailles was a fiction, bearing little relevance to the loyalties of articulate Syrians. The French Empire merely took the place of the withering Ottoman Empire. Peasants were still exploited, government was still highly localized, religious loyalties continued to decline, and powerful Syrian politicians went about life as usual. Arab Muslims, Druzes, Alawites, Maronites, and all the other groups in pre-mandatory Syria, though they did clash, did not draw their anger from cross-century holy wars hearkening back to the time of the Crusades. Rather, their pre-mandate quarrels were based on complex ethnic, geographical, and political rivalries that did not involve the French or the Ferengi in any way. 
In fact, many historians argue that these sectarian conflicts were not conflicts at all, but just the outward appearance of a geopolitical localism that did actually function in a stable way without European interference. As historian Joyce Liberty Miller puts it, quote, the attitude at Versailles was that the death of the Ottoman Empire left a void which would soon become chaos if a rational structure were not developed. In fact, no complete void existed, end quote. Instead of resolving conflicts in mandatory Syria and Lebanon, the French indulged in this patriotic historical fantasy that they were modern-day Christian crusaders, there to save the Christians in the Levant from Muslim hostility. Historian Philip Corey put it this way, quote, Given the skew of French moral influence, Frenchmen preferred to emphasize social and cultural differences among Syrians and to interpret these as the products of endemic sectarian conflict. Where the French saw Syriac peoples of two different religions engaged in separatist or hostile behavior, they saw it only in the form of a dialectic between a less civilized version of themselves, the Maronites, and the modern version of the medieval Mohammedan infidels, a Muslim fanatic hell-bent on preventing national unity. They saw what they wanted to see. Yes. And it's just, it's kind of, it's so weird to me because it's not, I don't mean to imply that there is not sectarianism or um, that there isn't conflict, uh, there isn't ethnic or religious conflict in these areas. There there definitely is, but there is a lot of evidence by sociologists and historians that that, that doesn't have to be a problem, that... Europeans think of it as a problem because we believe in these very kind of large, centralized nation states, and we're unable to conceive of um, a state that is functional that does not look like our own. Some people would argue, you know, that even though Syria and Lebanon had their problems already, that the French, uh, that that they could have resolved those issues Mm -hmm. and maintained sovereignty themselves if the French hadn't come and chopped them all up into tiny pieces and turned all of these different groups against each other and then said, see, we told you they're incorrigible, you know. Um, It's really frustrating, especially since this system was supposed to be a more kind of humanitarian, culturally sensitive version of of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess there's just no such thing (laughs) is what it comes down to. Thanks for joining us today for this long and complicated episode. I know it's a little bit more uh, geopolitical than we normally get, but I kind of felt like we needed that for our Borders um, series. And if there's any place where borders are problematic, it's uh, in the Levant. So um, make sure you listen to the rest of the episodes in our Border series. Um, You can find... Uh, transcripts and show notes at digpodcast.org. You can find us on social media at dig underscore history, um, Twitter, Facebook, and go to our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Thanks, y'all. And if you're looking to bedazzle yourself in some epic dig swag, you can visit our Tee Public uh, store, uh, find the link in to our swag store, as well as those transcripts and bibliographies for all of our episodes at digpodcast.org. Bye! Bye to orient orientalist over the causalities of war casualties there, peace par, paris peace just ignore that okay <laughs> and british were obliged 
or no, no, <laughs> obliged. Sounds like a very British thing. Okay. Or a name perpetrated in the Ferengi of today. The common perpetuated. What did I say? She said perpetrated twice. <laughs> <What the> <laughs> um, in Lebanon. Do you say Lebanon or Lebanon? I say Lebanon, but it's okay. I think they're both correct. It's just no. I think Lebanon is Lebanon, New Hampshire, and so that's why I say it that way. Hardening back to the time of the or hearkening back to the time of the Crusades, including the mountains of Lebanon. Damn it! I did it again. <laughs> colloquial, colloquially, 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 colloquial. Colloquially known. I'm going to use commonly. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm just going to start that over again. Powder. The powder keg of Arab nationalism. <laughs> the powder. <laughs> I don't know why. The first read. <laughs> the powder. Likewise. <laughs> okay. Stay tuned for future episodes or for uh, more episodes about. Oh my god, what the f Um. I know, but. It I just wanted to be over. Red. <laughs> do you want me to redo that one? Okay, redo yeah. it. I can redo it. <clears throat> Alright, we're, we're suiting for excellence here, right? <laughs> there is not sectarian. Anti-colonial sentiment had risen in Europe and the Americas. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I'll start that over. Of urbanity. Or urbanism, you could say, if you prefer. Urbanity is kind of British, I think. Of urbanism. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> 